Our podcast sponsor today is strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, you can get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It's a free download and you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. That's firmsconsulting with an S dot com forward slash overall approach. And if you are looking to advance your career and need to update your resume, you can get a McKinsey and BCG winning resume template as a free download at www.firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF. That's www.firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF. Hey, Ranjay, it's great to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. So I think as a starting point, I always like the audience to get a sense of whom it is we are speaking to. So maybe talk a little bit about your background, how you ended up studying leadership and working with leaders around the world. Well, you know, I wish I could give you a linear story and tell you that this is always part of the grand plan. Yes. Uh, It was not part of the grand plan. Um, You know, it was, I would say, a circuitous journey with many serendipitous kind of moments along the way. You know, uh, I studied uh, in India. I came to the U.S. as an exchange student. Um, I was supposed to do a PhD in finance. I didn't think I wanted to do it, but I was admitted to do it yeah. at the University of Pennsylvania. And then I ended up t- uh, starting as an exchange sc- uh, student for two years while I decided whether I wanted to take on that PhD. And through that, I discovered computer science and I was working at Microsoft, which was a small company. Um, I came for my master's to MIT with the full intention of going back to Seattle Yes, uh, and Microsoft. But then while I was at MIT, I met this professor through whom I had really discovered the intersection of social science and management. And I had been an econ math student and computer science. And the idea of studying sociology and psychology and organizations was completely new to me. And that fascination led me to do a PhD at Harvard. And, uh, and, and you know, the study of organizations comes in multiple flavors. There's a study of organizations themselves. There's a study of the leaders who lead these organizations. Yes. And then there's a study of the people who live in these organizations. And I found it fascinating because in my own limited work, when I had, I had worked in a family business growing up as a kid, that was very formative for me to understand business. Um, but also in my time at Microsoft, you know, I had come to realize that businesses or organizations are human systems. You yes. might think that you have a design to them, but there are fundamentally human systems. And then somewhere in before my PhD, I spent uh, four months on a kibbutz and, uh, in Israel. And once again, you know, it's a great microcosm to, microcosm to understand organizations. And I came to realize that, you know, organizations are are indeed populated by human beings, individuals, and, and they're complex. And there are cross currents in organizations that we, and to understand why and how organizations operate, you need to understand how the individuals within those organizations interact with those organizations. And it's the intersection between individuals and organizations. So that was my kind of kind of foray into studying and how I landed up where I did. You know, I come to the similar conclusion as you because I used to be in a previous life a senior partner in strategy, corporate strategy, and corporate finance. Mm. And when I came through the ranks, it was always this belief system was groomed into us that as young consultants, the most exciting work was in strategy and corporate finance. But as I started doing work, I realized some of the best thinkers in the firm and some of the most exciting and important work we're doing was around organizational design and organization theory. And I remember being exposed to this one study where this partner, this was before people started thinking of organizations as organisms that heal and grow and change and have character and have a different will and so on. But I will say that the work we did in organization was far more impactful than the work we're doing in corporate finance. So I can see why you went in that direction. But switching gears just a little bit, you talk about courageous leadership. Let's expound on that a little bit. So, you know, in the last, uh, I wrote a book recently, a few years ago called Deep Purpose. Again, far from what I would have done five years ago. Yes. Uh, And I was studying how do organizations 
find growth opportunities. That's what I was looking at. You know, strategy, strategy implementation, whatever. And I discovered that some of the most interesting turnarounds or business transformations had involved companies looking back into their purpose. Why are we here? Whether it was Microsoft or Etsy or Lego or even my own family's business, you know, I found that and a lot of small companies were animated by the sense of we are trying to be something different. We're yes. trying to impact the world in some big way. So purpose is a very individual idea, actually. Right? Originally, when you say, what's your purpose? You're not asking a company's purpose. You're mostly asking individual, what's your life purpose? Yes. And, and, and it can be transformative for some people. And I found organizations doing that too. So it was just a fascinating journey. But as I got into this subject, I found some of the leaders who embarked on this exercise, this existential exercise, exhibited tremendous courage in doing so. Because sometimes it meant taking on some of the sacred cows around you. Like, why do we exist? You know, who are we here to serve? And uh, do you really know what uh, the answer to that is? And... Um, and so somehow in these conversations with these leaders, I, I mean, I'll just give you some examples. You know, um, one of the gentlemen I interviewed is name is James Mawangi. And James is the CEO, I think the bank's called First Equity Bank. It's the largest bank in East Africa. And, and James has not only taken an almost bankrupt bank and turned it into the largest, most successful bank in the region, but he's built it in a very distinctive way where the bank is heavily involved in the redevelopment of the entire region. So the bank has decided they're a catalyst for growth, for economic yes. growth for all. And, you know, if you look at James, his story starts from when he was a child and how he had to take on adversity. And in listening to his story and others like his, I realized courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is taking action in the face of fear. We think of courage as kind of courageous as James Bond, you know, Clint Eastwood. Cool, yeah. calm, collected. No. Courageous people feel fear, but they still choose to proceed. They still choose to take action. And, uh, and you know, so, and Nelson Mandela talked about this. Mahatma Gandhi talked about this. So the word Courage, to me, I think is an underappreciated currency because we don't even know what it is in the first place. Yeah. So that's how I kind of came to uh, the word courage. Uh, I have a personal story as well into this I can share with you if you like. Yes, definitely we'll go through that. But I was just thinking about this. I want to make this point clear to the listeners because sometimes it gets missed in discussing and analyzing what companies are doing. But we often forget about the psychology that sits behind a decision that's being made. I was speaking to the CEO of a major financial services company recently, and he's going to take his business out of commercial banking. So he's going to exit the commercial banking space. And when we were having this discussion, it was very clear to him that at some point, the board will turn against him and probably fire him. But he absolutely believes it's the right decision to make to exit commercial banking, what he's doing is he's putting in place all of the little steps that need to be there so the bank can exit the commercial space before he's most likely going to be fired. And I was just thinking wow. about this as you were speaking. Wow. This is a guy who knows he's going to be fired, but he's doing what he believes is best for the company and the shareholders. And we often forget, you know, when you think about courage, it's a very soft concept, but here's someone who's going to, he's going to be pilloried through the press, lose his job, lose a lot of money, but he still wants to do what is right. And we often forget about the psychology that a leader needs to have to go through that. And, you know, it's very interesting you bring that up. It's a great example. And uh, is that the part we don't fully appreciate is that we think of courage and we always think of like people who are completely unfazed. Yes. Now, I'm sure this gentleman, you know, before he's doing it, he's he's mulled over the consequences of his actions, right? He's yes. mulled over the costs, and, and he, I'm sure there are easier ways out. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been working with him. He's been unable to sleep. 
He's yeah. brought in a therapist to help him. Yeah. He's trying to figure out how he's going to manage to stay in the country if he loses his job because he doesn't have permanent residency. Oh, Enormous wow. implications for him. Wow. But he fundamentally believes that he has to do it because nobody is seeing reality in this company and they're destroying shareholder value. Yeah. And he believes that if he loses his job, it's fine. But the way he said it is that when he joined the company, he brought in a lot of talented young people from his previous employer. Yeah. And he promised them that they would have a good life. And he feels that if he doesn't do this, many more people like them are going to lose their jobs and he's going to be setting a very bad example for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's funny you say that the story that ties into exactly the, your example was, so my dad was in the military when yeah. uh, I was a kid and I had to go back a few years ago and pack up his belongings. And, you know, I had a great relationship with him. He had a good life and, you know, he went the way he wanted to. But, you know, when you're packing up his things, you know, you have these flashback memories. Yes. So I remember this moment. India had been in a rather challenging war. And my dad had that time been in military intelligence. And he was in a, a dangerous combat mission behind enemy lines. And anyway, he came back. He was fine. And, you know, I was, you know, 10 years old. I was yes. kind of proud of my dad. I asked him, I said, Dad, Dad, when you were out there, were you scared? Now, the answer I was looking for, as a 10-year-old, my favorite movies were James Bond. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, he's going to say, no. I, and I still remember the 10-year-old me listening to him saying, uh, actually, son, it was very scary. You know, we were behind enemy lines. We had no supply lines. We had no extraction plan. We had lost the element of surprise. So it was very scary. But, you know, hey, I had a job to do, so we did it. I remember being thoroughly disappointed in my dad. Because all my brain could process was, I can't believe he was scared. Yes. But, you know, it's taken me a long time to realize that actually courage, that is courage, taking action in the face of fear. And allowing us, because fear as an emotion is a primal emotion, you know, the good old fight or flight. It's one of those amygdala hijacking primary emotions that is in our primitive. Yes. So how do we kind of master that? There are a few naturally fearless people who just somehow, I don't know how they're wired up, but there's actually a lot of really interesting research on the psychology of fear and how we experience fear, under what conditions do we experience fear, and how we tame fear. You know, how do we tame fear is the interesting question to me. Well, I remember once, many, many years ago, we were working with a very well-known Nobel laureate in economics, and we had brought him on to analyze a productivity study we had done for the United States. Hmm. This was a long time ago. But anyway, we came up with all these conclusions why the United States was able to move ahead of Japan at a time when many people thought the Japanese were going to take over the world. This was the 80s, right? Yeah. And this guy really struck me as as very interesting in the way he thought about things, because he was the academic advisor testing our thinking on how we were analyzing economic growth in the United States. And he read this whole report at the end, and he came up with a very different conclusion, which he felt we should include in the paper, where he said that the reason why Americans or America jumped ahead of the Japanese is because we were terribly afraid of the Japanese. And he must yeah. never discount fear as a significant motivator to get things done. <laughs> And it's true, right? Because, you know, as consultants, we're looking at all the microeconomic reasons about productivity growth. And he summed it up very clearly as an example you gave. Fear can drive us to do quite amazing things if we really think about it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've been looking at the Marine Corps. Yes. Because the Marine Corps has to train ordinary people to go out and take extraordinary risk, right? Absolutely. And sometimes with no kind of national, it's not like America is being threatened by its neighbors. You know, we're not trying to defend yes. our border. So how, who are you fighting for? And what I learned was something called relative fear. The fear of letting your teammates down is greater than the fear of dying. So when you have such intense camaraderie, you know, that you, the disappointment you are going to cause in your teammates exceeds the fear of dying. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense because I actually have quite a few friends in the Marines, to be honest. Ah. And one of the things that strikes me about them is 
they are the most polite people I've ever met in my entire life. You would think these guys that are trained to go behind enemy lines and do things that we could never think about doing would be aggressive, tough guys, but they are so polite and kind and helpful and supportive. It almost it almost jars your your reckoning with what you know they do. Well, they don't tell you everything they do, but you know enough and how they actually come across. So what you say makes sense because they really operate as a team. They know each another so well and trust each another so much. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think, you know, so the question is, who are you fighting for? Are you fighting for yourself? Are you fighting for each other? Are you fighting for the Marine Corps, Semper Fidelis? Because the Marine Corps expects loyalty to the institution and not yes. to let the institution down. Are you fighting for the country? Are you fighting for your commander? I mean, and the same thing happens in team sports, by the way, right? Well, I think the Marines is a better example because there's no money involved and they cannot speak about what they've done. Yeah. They're never going to get credit in the newspapers. Yeah. Nobody's going to know that my dad was deployed for six months and he did this to protect the country. Yeah. You've got to come home and you can't tell anyone the sacrifices you've made so that they could live a free life. I mean, it's difficult. To me, you must have incredible mental fortitude to be able to do that. Yeah, It no, reminds I'm... me of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, where yeah. they are not allowed to play for money. They have to play in New Zealand, which has smaller clubs and lower salary, for the right to be considered to play for the All Blacks and represent their country. And they do it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And so how do you create? So you tell a team coach and say, how, what is a coach trying to do in a professional sport? Yes. In a professional sport, a lot of them, players are playing for themselves, the big bucks, yeah. fame, fortune, right? Then you say, no, I want to create a team spirit so you play for each other. No, I want to create a spirit so they connect to the coach, so they're playing for the coach. Uh, no, actually, I want to create a connection to the, you know, the, 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 the community so they play for the team and for the fans. So how do we elevate and expand our sense of responsibility? Because one of the vehicles to overcome fear is that sense of responsibility that I have something bigger than myself that I owe it to. Yes. You know what I mean? No, I know exactly what you mean. I remember speaking once to a lady. She was in the Marine Corps as well. If I remember the details correctly, she was one of the first women to do something in the Marine Corps. I can't remember what it was. And I remember we're discussing, you know, how do you get up when you fail? Because you often fail in life and you do things wrong, but how do you pick yourself up to go ahead when you're in enemy territory and you don't know what's happening? And she said, well, I pick myself up because my teammates need me to pick myself up. Yeah, And that's the only reason I pick myself up. If I was alone, maybe I'd give up. But I know that if I don't pick myself up, six other people may not make it out of here. Yeah, And as you say, she has a responsibility, almost a, a covenant with her team. Yeah. I think that's the key. So now the question becomes back to our discussion about, you know, how do we kind of overcome this natural fear response? Yes. And which is always true for the unfamiliar. So when we are encountering something unfamiliar and we don't have a full sense of control over it, you know, and there could be physical risk, there could be moral risk, you know. Yes. It doesn't have to be only physical courage. Courage is not just physical, right? I mean, a whistleblower is really worried about your friend is not experiencing physical threat to his life. Yes. Right? So it's a, it's a more different kind of, you know, he's a, a courage, a, even social courage sometimes where you're nervous speaking up in front of people. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most fears professionals have, right? The fear of embarrassing yeah. themselves in public. So how do we... Uh, yesterday, I, I talked to uh, the CEO of a company. is a female CEO, very dynamic. I can't say the name only because I have we haven't released that re- uh, interview yet. Who talked about kind of like for the longest time as a woman being told, "Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that," or oh, you know, and being judged and not taken seriously, and so many kind of setbacks she had to overcome. And and she said there were so many moments where she had self doubt, lack of confidence. How do you pull yourself out of it? I mean, that's what I think great leaders do. They take tough circumstances and are, instead of falling into the classic victimhood kind of uh, trap, you yes. say, I'm going to elevate my game. And, uh, and what does it take to be able to do that? That's the part that I find fascinating. Oh, it right? is fascinating. Absolutely. 
Whenever I deal with clients, they always tell me things like, Michael, I don't feel confident to do this. Hmm. And I always point to them, confidence is a feeling. Yeah. Why don't you do it even if you don't feel confident? Yeah. And see what happens. I know. So, but you know, how do our people willing to place themselves in unfamiliar, uncomfortable, sometimes even threatening circumstances where the downside can be significant? Oh, I'm not saying it's easy to do this. I think it's really difficult to do this. And sometimes it's in crisis moments too. I interviewed actually not long ago, this uh, gentleman, I'm blanking on his name. He was in the the mass shooting in the Chinese dance hall in California. Oh, the one in, um, what's it? Um, Alhambra, California, I think. Near, uh, Santa Monica, near Santa Monica. Yes. So I asked him, like, he then pounced on the attacker and pulled the gun away from him. Yes, I remember that story. So I'm like, why did he do that? Was it like just an impulse decision, cost-benefit analysis? Do you like thinking through it? What is going on here? And, you know, it was, there was a lot of other things going on. I mean, this dance hall belongs to his family for, since his, I think, grandmother started it. And his mother worked there her whole life. And all the people who were dancing in there were people he had known since he was a kid. So this was like sacred space for him. Yes. And he saw this guy coming in with a gun and realizing this guy was up to no good. He very quickly realized this is a mass shooter. The question was now, self-preservation or what? Yes. So this goes back to earlier what we were saying is when we feel a sense of responsibility about something, people are more likely to take action. To Which begs the question here, it would seem, and you probably would know more about this than me because you speak to leaders about this all the time, is that it would appear to me that we seem to be encouraging people through business schools and so on to be less focused on taking responsibility. It would seem, and I could be wrong, where people are more focused about how can they enrich themselves? I think enrich themselves is one answer, which is kind of the what more economic models of management. Yeah. We've created an incentive-based system that everyone is hyper-incentive driven. So everything becomes about the incentive structure. Um, possibly. I think the other part is that we create a kind of a culture or an ethos of, you know, don't try new things, don't rock the boat, don't take risk. Yes. And, and, and that, you know, we're all, and you already know, you know, all the research, Nobel Prize winning work on loss avoidance that human beings, we are much more tuned into losing than we are into winning. Yes. We experience losses greater than we experience the joy of winning. So if we had this kind of loss avoidance mentality, you get what uh, sports coaches call playing not to lose, playing to win. Explain the difference for the audience. Um, so, you know, playing not to lose is uh, the analogy in soccer would be you have the ball possession, but you keep the ball in your half. You're playing okay. defense. Yes. So you're not attacking because the worry is when you attack, you're vulnerable to counterattack. Yes. And so you're always in this kind of defense mode. Yes, I remember. I think the phrase for that is called parking the bus in soccer. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> then you break, yeah. So you know, how do you break out of that? And you know, successful individuals fall into that sometimes. They don't want to lose what they have. Um, successful organizations fall into that because you know they have something to lose. Yes. Like, don't screw it up. We have a lot to lose. We're the market leader. Don't rock the boat. And and so that becomes the issue. So how do we make someone have a sense of responsibility? How do we cultivate that? Uh, look, I'll just give you a few random answers here. I mean, my last book on purpose, I found that when people, when organizations create a sense of purpose, why are we here? Yeah. And they do it in a way that is both compelling and inspiring. Um, then you know people, and then they and they also dialed into their own purpose. Then you know you have a greater possibility that you feel connected. So you know, if I am, I'll give you an example. I'm writing a case right now on Lyft, and and Lyft almost went bankrupt. And yes. I asked the founders like, what kept you guys going? And they said, you know, we had this mission that we wanted to transform mobility, and that is what kept us going. That, you know, we can't give up. 
what's at stake is not just our business idea that we can go and our investors will be pissed off with us and fine, we can start another one. And, you know, investors love yeah. failed, failure in an entrepreneur. Maybe next idea will be better than this one. Fine. But instead, I think the point over here was one of, we want to transform mobility. And we can't let this go. Because there's a lot of things that can change in the world for the positive if we get it right. Or, you know, Etsy, the whole purpose is to make commerce human. We have all these craftspeople who rely on us to sell their wares and make their livelihood on our platform. They need us. So, you know, you're trying to build in people, you know, just the way we feel responsible for our families, right? Are we willing yes. to do anything for our family members? Yes. Right? Even risk our own lives? Yes. So how do we create that sense of belonging, connection, responsibility that in turn elevates our thinking and allows us to feel, you know, and some companies I found people go back to the founding of the company. I met this, the former CEO of Lego. Yes. And you know, what he did was he came in and Lego was nearly bankrupt and Lego was doing theme parks and he said, Lego's lost its way. So he said, let me go back to the founder. Founder, like, who's no longer there, this is like decades ago, early 30, 1930s. I said, why did he start the company? I want us to reconnect to the founder story. And the founder had started Lego for one simple reason, intelligent play. That was the essence of his idea. He said, we need to dial back into that. And we need to all feel that sense of pride and connection and meaning. And when you feel that way, even if you're fearful about what you're doing, you the sense of responsibility and belonging propels you forward. I like the Lego example because for many reasons, but one thing that struck me is that when they were doing badly, they seem to have went into this model of diversifying into electronic toys and so on. Yeah. But correct me if I'm wrong, when the change happened, they went back to focusing on the single product of a building brick. Is that correct? Exactly. And, and all related adjacent robots, they did robots too, but it had to be connected into that core idea of yes. intelligently. You know, what are we here to do? You know, how is what we do matter? How does it make a difference? This is not just ESR, ESG, CSR. It's like, how does what we do have an impact on people's, our customers' lives even? Our work is transformative, you know, and, and, and that then elicits a sense of pride, a sense of connection, sense of meaning, and, and allows people to then feel that, you know, I need to do it. It's like I told you, my dad's argument was, I'm, I was scared, but I had a job yes. to do. And I mean, there was no going back, man. I mean, in his case, you know, it was a national patriotic element to it as well. Because, you know, when you're in the army, your job is to defend yes. the country. So fear or no fear, onward we go. Going back to the Lego example, since you've spoken to the leader and the leadership team, why do you think it took them so long? Or why do you think they moved off the original purpose in the first place? So, you know, this idea of purpose drift is not uncommon. It happens to us individually too, right? We yes. maybe at some point, first of all, many of us don't even know our life purpose. Yes. But even if we do, you know, life gets busy, we get swayed, we distractions happen in our lives and all that other kind of stuff. And so sometimes we kind of drift away from it. Mm. And, you also see that in strategy, you know, strategy drift, where companies have a strategy and they slowly but surely start drifting away from it. Yeah. And so... Purpose is the why question that, you know, once upon a time, some founder may have come up with an idea about why they were starting the business. You know, Johnson & Johnson has a credo. Many, so, you know, we can talk about large companies, but like Lego, which may happen to, I actually did a separate study where I looked at small companies. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed 65 founders of hyper-growth startups, meaning these were super successful ones. Yes. All of them had exploded, meaning this was the 5 or 10% of the ones who made it, not the 95% who didn't make it. And these were the creme de la creme. So I interviewed them and I asked them, I said, what is something that you feel has been lost? Your company is now 2,000 people from a startup. What has been lost? 
And they talked about three things. I call it the soul of a startup. One of those three things was we've lost that sense of purpose. We've lost that sense of, you know, what animates us to be here. So it's easy to lose as you scale, as you hire, as you grow. Um, and I think this uh, is something, you know, that I think is worth considering. It's really uh, interesting you bring up that example. It's a great example. Yeah. I remember once working for a very, I think they were the wealthiest family in this Latin American country. And I was speaking to the patriarch, you know, and I was asking him, why did the company do these things? And he said, it's because, you know, they're from Lebanon and they've had to move all over the world because they had no way to go. And he explained to me, the reason we did all these things is because we had no choice. Nobody's going to take care of us. Mm. So for him, it's not about the money. It's about survival. He's a billionaire. And he still thinks about survival. Yeah. And all his decisions are based on that. You know, it's interesting you talk about. I mentioned to you James Mawangi. Yes. So James's company, they sponsor kids and give them scholarships if they're in high school and they, yeah. they pass a national exam. And, and they also get shoes. And so I asked him, I said, like, what is the shoe story here? Like, why shoes? So James, when he was a kid, grew up dirt poor. His father had died. His mother was a widow. Yes. and four children. And I guess in Kenya, they take a national exam. And if you do well, you get to go to college. Yes. Uh, to high school. But if you go to high school, you know, he got in, he was a smart kid. But when he went there, he didn't have any shoes. And so the principal called the mother and said, take him back. We will not admit him. We're kicking him out of the school because he has no shoes. And the mother said, that's ridiculous. And she refused to leave. And she sat down and squatted in his office saying, I will not leave. You're penalizing my son for his inability to have money. Finally, the principal bought him the shoes. Yes. But James never forgot that story of that, you know, the I don't know if he never used the word humiliation, but the kind of the that moment where, you know, I don't have any shoes and maybe I can't go to school because I don't have shoes. What's interesting about the story is that there are many companies who would walk into his business and say that he's wasting money. Yeah. And you should cut out these expenses to pad and increase your bottom line. And I mean, that's basically the model of consulting and management, right? We look for efficiencies. But unfortunately, the analysis we do doesn't allow us to see how that can sometimes degrade our sense of purpose. And, you know, um, I'm all for businesses being profitable, right? Businesses need profit to survive. Would you agree? I mean, absolutely. Right. After all, shareholders risk their capital uh, in the hope that you will get a return. But I also think we forget about positive spillovers that come out of these things. You know, employees, you get better talent. Yes. You get motivational resources that come when your company stands for something bigger than you believe. You know, you have branding benefits where customers trust you more. But I think it's important for these kind of charitable efforts to be in some ways connected to the core of what the business itself does. Yes. A bank is very much about talent and people. It's human capital. Absolutely. And so you need to invest in talent. And this is a way to kind of groom talent from very young. But this random idea that, oh, we'll give some donation of books over here and we'll give some food yes. over there and we'll give something. The foundation model where there's indiscriminate and a small amount of kind of tokenism, uh, it's more posturing. I think that doesn't work. And I think it's obvious it comes across as virtue signaling and posturing and so on. Yeah. And that's when you lose connection with your stakeholders because they know you're insincere. Exactly. Now, I mean, I think it's, so this has been my kind of journey into organizations. And, you know, I found it talking to leaders from all over the world whether it was leaders in Latin America, you know, I interviewed the leader, the founder of, uh, you know, the largest digital bank in Latin America. And then I talked to the largest McDonald's franchisee in the world, happens to be in Latin America. I interviewed, you know, uh, Sim Shabalala, the CEO of the largest bank in all yeah. of Africa. And, or in Asia, Anand Mahindra. You know, there seems to be kind of a common thread among all of them. You know, they're not just driven. They're ambitious. Let's be very clear. 
to be a great leader, yes. you have an ambition. They have a vision. They have a mission. They want to be successful. They want to build a successful, thriving business. Yes, yes, yes. But they've got something more. It isn't just naked, blind, pure, ambit, financial ambition. You know, you are 100% right. The wealthiest man I know, a billionaire in financial services, he makes his own sandwiches. And I once asked him, you know, how come you don't drive these fancy sports cars? And he said, I'm American and I'll drive a GM. <laughs> That's what drives him has nothing to do with money. He's not even interested in it. He just likes to solve interesting problems. But he's driven by also his heritage, having grown up in Europe, in a ghetto and so on. He's a really nice guy. And as you said, it's not about the money. Obviously, the money is part of it, but he's not the primary driver. He makes his own sandwiches. That was quite funny to watch. Interesting. It's, there's a simplicity to them, but I think there's also what I would say, this larger sense of purpose to what they do. Let me uh, Maybe I'll share a short vignette with you. So when I was a kid, my mother started a business. Yes. She was a school teacher at the American school. And part of her, her school sponsored her to go and do a master's in anthropology at Vanderbilt. And the Vanderbilt was flying its faculty into Athens, Greece. They had school teachers from all over the world coming in for summer classes. And over five summers, they got their master's degree. So her thesis was about tribal Indian women who hand printed their fabrics. And it was driven by a very simple idea. She wanted to show the Western world that India is poor and backward. 1960s, India was very poor, still is. But we are a very advanced, sophisticated, aesthetic sensibility civilization. Yes. And this then turned into an idea where she was going to take these fabrics that were hand-printed to make saris by women in villages and put them onto Western clothes, like dresses and skirts yeah. and blouses. And off she went to Paris and she convinced a couple of fashion houses to buy her designs. And this thing took off. But it was never about only, yes, she wanted to have a business. She wanted to have a yes. livelihood. You know, she needed the money. But there was this larger animating force that I want to show the West how beautiful even our village people are. You could be really poor, but you create beauty to wear using simple vegetables, vegetable dyes. You don't have money to buy colors. So you know what I mean? So there's always, I, I wrote another article a few years ago called From Big Ideas to Grand Ideals. We think that startups are driven by big ideas. Sure they are. Many of them are only a big idea. But a lot of them also start with a grand ideal. I want to transform the world. I'm writing a case right now on Lime, this uh, electric scooter and bicycle rental company, bike share company, all now uh, global. They want to transform mobility. They feel that automobiles are what is going to wreck the world. Even if it's electric vehicles, when you have a 4,000-pound uh, body of mass that has to be moved, you need a certain amount of energy, yeah. whether it's electrically generated or uh, you know combustion generated. And that's what animates them. Coming back to the story about your mom, which is a beautiful story, it would seem to me that making money was a validation of what she was trying to do as opposed to the goal of what she was trying to do. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Beautifully said. And I'll just share a vignette with you on exactly that point that you just made. So I was a teenager and she would work crazy hours and she had me working crazy hours. So I remember having dinner with her one day and I'm trying to give her a lesson, lecture on work-life balance. Yes. And I said, um, why, you need work-life balance. You, you know, you're working crazy hours. What I really meant was she, I was working crazy hours. And, and so she put down her fork and she said to me, she said, son, my wish for you is that you never have to work a day in your life. Now, I'm a teenager. My teenage brain was processing my trust fund. This sounds great. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, mom. Oh, yeah, this sounds really wonderful. Tell me more. And she was shocked. She said, no, that's not what I'm saying. She said, what a horrible phrase, work-life balance. Yes. She said, I get work-leisure balance. I get work-family balance. But work-life means you're putting work in opposition to life. Don't you want to be living when you're working? She said, my wish for you is you end up finding something in your life to do work-wise that doesn't feel like work. So even the label work has this kind of, uh, you know, uh, negative connotation to it. 
And, and that is, I think, the essence of like, when I feel I'm doing something that is bigger than myself, that I'm having an impact, then you're right. The money is a validation or a byproduct. It's not the 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 be all of the whole story. Yes, I like the way your mom thinks. I think in a similar way. People always ask me, you know, Michael, when are you going to take a vacation? It's December. And I always think, but why do I need to take a vacation? I like my life. <laughs> I don't. I didn't want a vacation from my life. I like my life. Every day is yeah. a good day. I don't see my work as work, which is why I can work all the time. I get yeah. to speak to amazing guys like you. Well, Who wouldn't want this job? It's a really good job, actually. Right? <laughs> and your mom so, is right. You need to lean into what you enjoy doing and build a life from that versus forcing yourself to do something you don't like yeah, just for the money. So I think, but this is so hard for people to understand. You know, it's really hard to decouple and think of money as a byproduct versus as an end goal. You know, even for a business. That, I think, is what we haven't understood. I mean, if you look at some of the great leaders, they say, you know, we financial return is a byproduct of serving your customers effectively. Yes. You need to be thinking about your customers and your markets and your employees. And if you take care of those things, then financial returns take care of themselves. Yes. It's all about mindset. I had a client recently who was, he worked for one of the big tech companies and he was an executive not very senior, I would say mid-level executive, uh-huh. maybe senior mid-level. And they had assigned him to lead the AI effort. And we we're talking about whether it's a good opportunity for him. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, I get a chance to work with a guy who's leading the AI effort at one of the most prominent tech companies in the world. Yeah. What could be more exciting than that? <laughs> because I'm going to be- play a role in shaping what's going to happen in AI. Yeah. Inside seat, front row. Yeah. I'm going to have my hand on the steering wheel. So I think it's about having that mindset because when he was thinking about it, he saw it as a very challenging career move. He didn't want to take it. And I said, look, you're getting a chance to play a role in something that's going to shape the future of mankind. You would be crazy not to go after this. Yeah, It's about the mindset. Oftentimes, we assign the wrong meaning to things. But, you know, again, you see how you know, you are keeping score for yourself, if you, if I may say so. You know, some of us keep score. Like, you know, my late colleague used to say, you know, what is your measure of success? Yeah. And, you know, and Clay Christensen even wrote a book called Measuring Your Life. Yes, that's a very good book. Right? And the whole idea there was that, you know, we look at things that are easier to measure, such as yeah. financial returns. Yes. I can look at my bank statement and tell you exactly what I have. And I can feel good saying it's bigger than last year. That feels really good. But sometimes we have to also think about impact. How many lives have I impacted? Have I made? And, and then, you know, returns is a, a byproduct. So I think this is the larger question as we think about our own purpose in life. You know, we have to kind of. Uh, introspect about this question um, around how does one create an orienting framework so for how we choose to live and how that in turn frames the choices we make similarly for businesses i find it fascinating to me the interesting thing was having a purpose creates an orienting framework for which product markets you want to go after which ones you don't want to go after Right. So you for Lego, the whole idea of intelligent play was a way to refocus the business and redefine the product scope of the business and saying that, you know, maybe our product scope has gotten too diffuse and diluted. No, that's right. That's a good way of thinking about it. You know, that but, book measure what matters. I feel that people almost have this belief that if I have financial wealth, my life will be easy. I'll be more accepted in the world. I had a client once. And we asked him, how much money do you feel you need to have before you can get married? And he said, 100 million. Oh, my God. And you know what my response was? How many wives do you want? (laughs) It's 100 million. But it's a classic example of assuming more wealth leads to a better life. Yeah. It's because we are taught that, right? We're taught from a young age, you've got to make sacrifices to go study, then work, then build your wealth, and then enjoy your life. And that's pretty much the way we are taught to live our lives. Yeah. 
had another I've... client who was telling me that she met the perfect guy, uh-huh. but uh, she's too young to get married at the age of 28. And I was asking her, what happens if you don't meet the perfect guy when you're ready to get married? Yeah. And it's because like her and like him, they've bought into this model that you must sacrifice to build wealth and then spend down your wealth later. And it shapes our belief systems, our decisions, and so on. And oftentimes, people don't even realize they've made these decisions until they have a sense of regret. Often, we call it a midlife crisis, right? I think these these are very important questions. And I think the larger question you have to start asking yourself is that, you know, even if you use an efficiency perspective, you've got to figure out what is your utility function. I like that. That's the economist in your speaking. Exactly. And I think we don't even know what that is. Because you can't make, life is all about trade-offs. We are making trade-offs and choices all day long. But we do it without access to our utility function. So you're, by definition, going to sub-optimize. You know, and a good example of this is Netflix, right? And all the streaming services. Before I had streaming services, I'd find a movie and watch it. Now that I've subscribed to all the streaming services, when I find a movie I like, I think, what if there's a better movie out there? And I keep, and I go to the next movie. I can spend an hour just going from movie to movie, trying to figure out the best movie. We also tend to experience life that way, whereby we don't realize life is what you do with the people closest to you. We start looking for more and more experiences, not realizing it's what we make of the experiences we have. So I think there's a lot of wisdom out there that you know one should tap into to really kind of get perspective on our lives, whether it's finding our life purpose, whether it is figuring out our guiding principles and values that we want to shape us, whether we then translate it into what we want to optimize and spend time on, you know, what's success like. And and then we feel we are, you know, and then that translates into what we do at work and how we show up to work. Um, And it also impacts us as leaders because we then try to bring that same purposeful, intentional orientation towards the organizations we lead and that uplifts everybody, you know. Um, yes. I remember talking to one of the sports coaches, and and I asked him, I said, "What do you do as a coach?" And he said, "My job as a coach is to unlock human potential." I like and that. I, you know, all of us have we're suboptimizing ourselves, and sometimes we need a coach. Sometimes we need to figure it out ourselves. Yeah. And this, I think, the inherent kind of journey on which we all should be is and and sometimes this remains hidden from ourselves and that i think is what is the real crux of the whole issue so courage if i look at it sometimes courage is as simple as allowing yourself to discover your hidden potential yes right we don't even want to see it or we're too scared to see it or we don't allow ourselves to see it or we allow circumstances to shape it or other people to shape it. So we take cues from what others are doing rather than what we may want to do. And, and I think this is a part of our life journey exercises to figure out how are we going to find things that drive meaning, purpose, and allow us to then show up differently. Um, I think that is, you know, you may, you, I'm sure you already know it. All of us have kind of a, implicit hero's journey in our heads. We all yes. want to be heroic in our lives. You know, you look back and say, oh, what did I do? Oh, you know, I did this and I did that. Yeah. We all want to be heroes. We just don't know how to do it. That's a good way of thinking about it. We all have a hero story we tell ourselves that we want to live, but we leave it in our head because we don't have the courage to pursue it in the real world. Not all of us, but many of us, right? Yeah. And we, we, actually, learn, we, we, we do it vicariously. Then we end up doing watch a movie and I'm for a, I transport myself into James Bond for two hours. Yes, when you daydream. I remember reading an article in the New York Times. It covered this uh, lady in a rural part of India. And yeah. in her family, women had never worked before. And they interviewed and they asked her, what is your dream? My, she yeah. said, my dream is to work. Yeah. And she ended up pursuing her dream. But yeah. the, the point here is it's all relative for us. Yeah. And What's when you going to be one person's journey is going to be very different from someone else's. And when you find it, nothing stops you. You know, when you find that thing that really animates and elevates you, then there's no stopping you. Yes. So I think that is the key: finding that absolutely inimitable 
uh, and unique thing that you really want to do? Yeah, I mean, I the term I use is find the true why. Yeah, in your life. Yeah, if you find that and you can tap into that when you need it. Very nicely said. Wow, Michael, we can keep going forever. This is such a effortless conversation. Well, and... I'm, I'm going to end off with one important point here. Yeah. One of the things I do to remind myself of why I'm doing things is that I often visit the worst neighborhood in the city I'm in uh-huh. to remind myself of where I've come from and how easy it is to go back to that if you make a few bad decisions in life. Wow. It's a technique I use. So when I go to cities, I always go to the worst neighborhood and spend some time there to remind myself that I'm lucky I've got an education, I live a good life. But there are many people, including my own family, who are not in that position. And I need to remember that when I make decisions. Yeah, well, that's another way to talk about gratitude, right? Yes. And um, yeah, no, I love that. It's a great anecdote. So and something I think it's a great exercise to do is to uh, reflect on what we have and look at what others may not be so fortunate to have. Yes, Ranjay, thank you so much. Amazing conversation. In fact, it's a good time to be having this conversation for our listeners. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think, as you know, courage is a great currency with which to look at ourselves and to look at possibility in ourselves. Yes. And the possibility in the jobs we do and the possibility in the organizations we lead. But it starts with ourselves. You can't lead others until you can lead yourself. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Ranjay. I hope to have you back on the show soon. I would be delighted. Have a great day. Thank you. As we wrap up, today's podcast is sponsored by strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, you can get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies as a free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And if you're looking to advance your career and need to update your resume, you can get a McKinsey and BCG winning resume template example as a free download at www.firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF.